This is Archive Atlanta, episode 114, Chattahoochee Brick Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This has been a very hectic week for me in all zones, so my family life, my day job, my extra history-related passions. But for preservationists in Atlanta, this week has brought lots of amazing news, and so I want to focus on one piece of news in particular, and then replay an episode that I did all the way back in May of 2019. I don't assume that all of you out there have listened to every single episode. I'm sure there's some, like my mom or something. But I have gained many new listeners in the last two years, and so I wanted to replay the history of Chattahoochee Brick because it is one of the most important stories that Atlanta has to tell. Now, it's recently been in the news because the site is owned by Lincoln Energy Solutions, but they recently leased it to Norfolk Southern, who is planning to build a rail transfer terminal to move materials like ethanol and oil. As you can imagine, there was outrage from neighboring Whittier Mill, which I covered in episode 47, as well as environmental activists that were concerned about the proximity of these chemicals to the Chattahoochee River. But more importantly, there was outrage over developing on a site that had been ground zero for convict leasing. One of the largest producers of bricks in the world and one of the largest users of the convict lease system in the state of Georgia. The city of Atlanta filed a legal petition with the Federal Surface Transportation Board to stop the work. And believe it or not, Norfolk Southern backed out of the deal. This is a very David vs. Goliath-esque fight. It was inspiring to me that it was successful. I was really doubtful. I'm generally a very positive person. I just didn't think this was going to work. And so the story is definitely not over. I mean, the site is still privately owned. There's still questions about how the city can purchase this and how it can turn this into a, you know, a nature site and a site with a memorial of some kind. Um, but I want everyone to know the history behind it, the people who labored here, at times the people that were killed here, and the legacy that the bricks provided for the city, and then the English family's wealth provided for them. So without further ado, here is the episode from two years ago. So the end of the Civil War marks the end of chattel slavery in the United States, right? That's what they tell us in school. But over the last few years, we've read books like Slavery by Another Name and seen documentaries like 13th that are educating Americans on what really happened. In all southern cities, convict leasing booms at the end of the war, and the largest user of the system was right here in Atlanta. This week, I am sharing the history of Chattahoochee Brick and the English family. What was it? Who were they? And what is the legacy that we have in the city today? The most important lesson I learned when doing this research for this episode was to look further and ask deeper questions. When I see a building and I share the basic history, what can I learn about who built it or how did they build it? Even our popular neighborhoods, right? Who made them? How did those people make money? What materials did they use? I didn't really think about these things before and I'll share this a little later, but you know, there was there was even a historic house that I knew who lived in it now, so I kind of didn't even think to see who lived in it first or who built that house, so I learned a lot of lessons this week. I don't think this is an arguable opinion, but the more information we have, the better. The more that I can know about a place that I see or visit or work in or live in, the more that I'm able to connect with my surroundings. First, a little background. 
The Civil War ends in 1865, and in the period after the war we call Reconstruction, U.S. Congress passes three amendments to the Constitution that are going to restore, quote, the blessings of liberty to every man, white or black. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except for those convicted of a crime. The 14th Amendment grants citizenship rights and equal protection under the law. And the 15th Amendment prohibits voting discrimination. So let's go back to that first one, the 13th Amendment. It would be that little post-comma portion, except for those duly convicted of a crime, that would be exploited. In this post-war period, in addition to these constitutional amendments, we would also see the passage of what are called black codes, essentially a replacement for slave codes. And the idea is to restrict the freedom of these newly freed African-American populace. Now, interestingly enough, Georgia's usually not on this side of the story, um, but it was the only ex-Confederate state to not create a harsh black code, at least a harsh written black code. It did, however, have laws that technically applied to all races, things like vagrancy, the act of not having a job, and apprenticeship, but that, by circumstance, were majority committed by black men. So let's talk about our prison system in Georgia. Prior to 1865, all Southern convicts were white. Black men or black women were punished privately by their owners because they were considered property of those white owners. Georgia was the first Southern state to build a penitentiary to house criminals. Now, it was first requested to the legislator in 1803 when Milledgeville was about to become the capital. It was not, however, approved until 1812, um, and then the building wasn't even finished until 1816. It would be the following year, uh, March of 1817, that the first prisoner is let in. Georgians believed the prison reform ideals that those convicted needed to be removed from society. They needed to be confined in a space where they could contemplate their actions and repent. So all of the white Georgia convicts are held in the state penitentiary in Milledgeville, until about 1861. Now, I hope you guys know this already, but what I'm about to say is, of course, the Civil War. During the war, the penitentiary is used as an armory, and then the prisoners are forced to make weapons for the Confederate armies. As the Union forces approached, the governor of Georgia has a great idea, and he decides to release all of the prisoners, but he makes them promise they're going to stay and defend the city from the invading troops. So what do you think happened? Yeah, most of these freedmen were gone within the week, <laughs> so that didn't fare too well for the penitentiary, and it is destroyed by fire and never really rebuilt. I think they, they tried one or two kind of outbuildings, but it was never brought back to life. So after the war, we have two things occurring. The state no longer has a large and active prison, and the demographics of the prisoners has gone from all white to majority black. By 1866, Georgia would be one of the first states to establish the convict lease system. The cost of rebuilding and maintaining a penitentiary was way too high. And so the very few prisoners that they were housing in some of these buildings, after the war, they were quickly leased out into this system. Now, interestingly enough, before the war, the state penitentiary was running what is called a, quote, state account system. Which means that the prisoners were working in things like tanning, railroad construction, milling, and then the proceeds from this labor were returned into the support and the operation of the entire prison. 
The convict leasing system goes into effect in May of 1866 when 100 convicts are leased to Mr. William Fort of Rome, Georgia, for the construction of the Georgia and Alabama Railroad. And for those that don't know, the lease system places convicts in private companies, so indirect competition with free labor. And the prisoners were indentured as a means of paying off their fines or their court fees or their sentences. And the companies that lease these convicts, they would often sublease them out to other companies for a profit. By July of 1866, 100 more convicts were leased. And then in 1874, the entire system is leased to a company that was going by Grant Alexander and Company. In an effort to formalize, the governor of Georgia authorizes the General Assembly to offer 25-year bids for all of the state convicts. They have three bids that are accepted, which total about $500,000, and the winners are organized as penitentiary companies number one, two, and three. Penitentiary Company Number 1 is headed by former Georgia Governor Joseph E. Brown, and he owned, I think they were called the Dade Mines, um, but a very big coal mine operation. Penitentiary Company 2 is headed by a few men, um, B.G. Lockett, L.A. Jordan, and W.B. Lowe. So quick note, Lowe is the husband of Rebecca Douglas Lowe, who I talked about in the Atlanta Women's Club episode, which was number 11. And penitentiary company number three is headed by five other white men that <laughs> I wasn't going to list out all of their names. But um, a lot of these companies, it wasn't even just this one or two people that are listed as the officers. They were all interconnected. James Warren English has financial interest in both of these companies, one and two, and he eventually becomes president of company number three. Mr. English is going to feature prominently in our story today, so let me take the time to introduce you. Born in 1837 in Orleans Parish, Louisiana, he becomes an orphan at the age of 10 and is at that time living in Kentucky. By 1852, he moves to Griffin, Georgia. Now, while he's there, he has some random jobs. Uh, he was an apprentice, and then he eventually is able to save enough money to invest in real estate. When the Civil War begins, he enlists in the Confederate Army and goes on to have a very long, decorated military career, wounded five times and being promoted to captain. He moves to Atlanta after the war and cannot find a job, basically. He begins just a brick mover, someone paid to move bricks from one place to another. Then he's a clerk, then he works in a hotel, and then he again puts together enough money to buy real estate. In 1866, he marries Emily Alexander. They would go on to have five children. And just a decade later, he's been elected to the Atlanta City Council, and he owns property in Atlanta and in Buckhead. In 1881, James English becomes mayor of Atlanta. During his two-year term, he is known for ridding the city of gambling houses, establishing a paid fire department, and deciding that all of the roads in the city need to be paved. After mayorhood from about 1883 to 1905, he serves as the city's police commissioner. Founded in 1885, the Chattahoochee Brick Company was situated on the banks of the Chattahoochee River, which was a great place to make bricks from that mud. When the company started, there were three other stockholders in addition to James English, but by 1901, James buys out the two and he becomes a majority stakeholder. The plant produces just what you'd expect, bricks. Uh, they had plain, ornamental, or oil-pressed, and they made about 200,000 bricks a day. 200,000 bricks a day. 
without machinery. These bricks were not just used locally, they were sold nationally and internationally. And actually, between 1900 and 1905, half of the bricks produced were being exported. So this brick-making method had not changed much from pretty much 17th century Europe. Nine miles from the city of Atlanta proper, convicts are lined along the banks of the Chattahoochee with picks and shovels, and they dig at the wet clay and kind of put it in little piles. It is then transported back to the factory where more imprisoned men push that clay into small rectangular molds. Once that's dry, it's carried pretty much at a relay ray pace over to the coal fire kilns. So if you've ever done a pottery class, I mean, this is sad to compare it to that, but uh, just imagine about a dozen industrial size ovens um, and what they're doing is a person is running back from the dried brick mold to the person at the oven at record speeds. And here's the first place you're gonna find an overseer. Yep, the same person that you would find at an antebellum plantation, and he was holding a whip, making sure that that running pace was kept up. Each brick would bake in the oven for about a week, and then when it was finished, they're loaded up eight to 10 at a time onto a makeshift wooden pallet and then tied to the necks or backs of these incarcerated young black men. They would then run them up, kind of a thin plank, to a waiting train car. There's another man with a whip there. Anyone that was walking, or God forbid, stopped, was being whipped. On Sundays, other um, factory mill railroad owners would gather at, at Chattahoochee Brick to trade, buy, or sell their convicts. Chattahoochee Brick uses about 150 to 175 convicts every month. They had another 150 in a sawmill in Richwood, Georgia. There was about 300 at a mine in Walker County, and then a few dozen um, at a railroad and mining company that I wasn't sure what they were. All of these are owned by James English. In 1897, he is controlling about 1,200 out of Georgia's 2,881 convicts. This is not a good life. Of course, we don't exactly expect that you're going to have a good life in prison, but the few accounts that we have of life at Chattahoochee Brick are horrifying. Prisoners are fed rotting food. They're housed in barracks infected with insects. It's hard to understand the heat that people are running in. So again, a dozen industrial-sized ovens putting off so much heat that the guards would not carry guns on their person for the fear that the cartridge might have spontaneously exploded. There are several secondhand accounts um, in that book, Slavery by Another Name, that detail the abuses and the deaths that occurred at this plant. Around 33 million bricks had been made by the year 1907, generating a profit of what would today be $5.2 million. The English family made almost $2 million in profit. At the turn of the 20th century, James would turn over daily operations to his son, Harry. I mentioned earlier in the episode, James Sr. and Emily had five children. One would die in infancy, but the rest were very much part of Atlanta's highest echelons and would, with their spouses, continue to be Atlanta elite. James Jr. developed the new working-class neighborhoods of Vine City and English Avenue, um, right around probably the 1890s. 
hence we get the name English Avenue. Um, both of these neighborhoods, though, were easily connected to the neighboring Whittier Mill. There was something called the River Trolley Line. I think the trolleys definitely need their own episode, but um, the idea was kind of like the Fulton Bank Cotton Mill. You know, it's like we have these industrial sites and let's build some neighborhoods for people to live in. If you're wondering about those bricks that we used in Atlanta, what did they help build? And the answer is almost everything. Chattahoochee Brick contracted with the city to provide pallets of about a million bricks at a time. And according to a report, they are identifiable by the number one that is always in size on the ends. So in modern day Atlanta, you can find them in the Pullman plant in Kirkwood, what's left of Whittier Mills factory, part of the Kingplow Art Center, Girls High School building in Grant Park, the walls encircling Oakland Cemetery, and just about every single street deep underneath that asphalt in most of Atlanta neighborhoods, that's going to be Chattahoochee Brick. Earlier, I mentioned that when James English was the mayor, he ordered that every street be paved. And, you know, hey, we should pave these streets. By the way, I own a brick factory. Isn't that helpful? So the neighborhoods that are being developed um, in this time period of Chattahoochee Brick, so think Inman Park, Grant Park, those homes are most certainly have some of these bricks. Um, and then that brick is also in the roads. Chattahoochee Brick has also been found as far away as the Gwinnett County Courthouse in Lawrenceville. So let that sit for a moment. The next time you're looking at one of these places or walking these streets, the bricks that you see or the bricks that are hidden are made from southern convict labor. Majority young, black, southern men, just a few decades out of the chattel slavery system, being imprisoned for crimes as petty as not having a job and then being tacked with fines that grow and grow when they're not repaid. Allowing these plant and mine owners to circumvent having to pay a fair wage for free labor and instead grow their fortunes. James English founded Atlanta's fourth national bank in 1896. It would become First National Bank and one of the largest financial institutions in the South. That bank today is known as Wachovia. Convict leasing was abolished by the General Assembly in 1908, taking effect in 1909. Of course, that would take us into Georgia's chain gang era, which lasted until the 1950s. That's another episode for another day. Um, but the chain gang developed most of the public works projects you see in use today, so it's certainly something to talk about. Without slave labor, Chattahoochee Brick's business almost collapsed. Production fell by 50% in the following year. The site was sold to the General Shale Company in 1972, but it has been currently vacant for a number of years. The buildings that made up the original plant were last torn down in 2011, but if you go today, there's still some remnants of what was. There's pieces of broken brick, um, there's rusted metal, concrete, things like that. Among old company records found on the site after it was closed were maps laboring a, quote, temporary cemetery, end quote. And there's also a walled garden. There are no marked graves on the site, but accepted fact is that there are many, many unmarked graves on this property. We have the story of one white convict, Avery Bates. Avery was a convicted arsonist in 1884, sent to labor camp at Chattahoochee Brick to serve his three-year term. He manages to escape the following year, and he makes his way to a farm in Tennessee. 
It was very well known that James English employed skilled bounty hunters to find his escaped property. Almost two years later, poor Avery was found by hunters um, on his farm and shot to death. They did bring his body back to Chattahoochee Brick for Mr. English to identify. So now here's a discrepancy. Tennessee newspapers report that Bates' body uh, was buried at the Brick Company, but the Atlanta Constitution lists that he is buried at Westview Cemetery. I don't know if we'll ever know the true story, but I'm inclined to believe the first. And there you have it, the story of Chattahoochee Brick. My goal here was to make people aware of these stories and this site and how we can still see the remains in Atlanta today. Thank you everyone for listening, for the ratings and reviews, emails and messages. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.